Good afternoon, Seven Investors, and welcome to the Monday edition of Seven Investing Now. My name, of course, is Daniel Brooks Klein. I'm going to be joined today by Max Chatsko, and we lucked out, Max. Uh, you've been following this, and this is not our lead topic. We're going to talk about this later in the show. Uh, but Biogen was just approved for the first treatment of Alzheimer's uh, ever. We have some things that treat the symptoms of Alzheimer's. There is a lot to unpack with this one. It is not as simple as like, hey, this drug is approved. Now some people are going to be cured of Alzheimer's. That is absolutely not the story here. But we are going to get to all of it in a way that you're not going to see anywhere else in the media. I, I've read this story. It's It's been alerted to me like a dozen times. And every time I read it, I'm like, oh, that's really, really wrong based on what, Matt's, what Max is saying uh, in our Slack. And based on, frankly, usually the third paragraph of the article you're reading. A lot of times the, the headline just doesn't get it. This is probably good news, but it's not necessarily good news. But before we get to that... Max, how was your weekend? Are the dartboards of Pittsburgh opening back up? What are we? Uh, what fun did we have this weekend? Yeah, I went and played darts. I went and played disc golf. I actually got my first hole in one in disc golf, Dan. That a disc golf would be similar to what I used to think of as frisbee golf. Do you use more than one disc? Do you have like a putting disc and a and a long disc? It's gotten more complicated, right? Yeah, they have different uh, attributes. So you know, you want like a different disc for driving. Sometimes there's mid ranges. You have different putters. I only have two that I use uh, usually, but uh, some people have like a whole bag, a suitcase with wheels and there's like 30 discs. It's a little overboard, but you know. Perhaps someday I will caddy for Max in a game (laughs) of uh, disc golf. Our lead story today, we're going to talk about how we pick the companies we invest in. This is not hard and fast. There's no one set of criteria. Now, we know some of our friends out there, the the Brian Feroldis and the Brian Stolfels of the world, our our good friend Anand Shakavalu, they have spreadsheets where they fill things out. And even those people have some leeway and some wiggle room in what they do. I will say I have more wiggle room than anything else. Uh, A lot of what I'm doing is a feel, but we're going to go through six different topics here that sort of breaks it down. We would like to take your questions and your comments. Uh, Feel free to throw in your general investing or market questions as we go. Uh, We know it is the summer and a lot more people are watching these shows after the fact than live. So if you're watching live, we fully appreciate your questions, your comments, your hellos, your thank yous, your compliments, your negatives, whatever it might be. But Max, when you are investing a stock, how do you start? Yeah. So Dan, I take a bottom-up approach to investing. So I say you can have a top-down or a bottom-up approach. A top-down approach might be, um, you know, hey, I like CRISPR gene editing. I think that's going to be big. So I'm going to go and own all of the CRISPR gene editing stocks. So it's more of a basket approach. A bottom-up approach that I do, I take, I look at an area, let's say CRISPR gene editing, and um, I'll, I'll start with scientific literature. So I want to really understand all the ins and outs of the science behind it. What are the challenges? What are the opportunities? What are some of the outstanding questions that haven't been solved? Uh, and then from there, you know, I'll look at the competitive landscape as well. Um, so even though CRISPR gene editing might be targeting certain diseases, I'll look at, you know, what are some other therapeutic modalities? There's antibody drugs that are doing something similar. There's RNAi, there's other genetic medicines out there. Uh, so I want to get a whole, a big picture view of the entire landscape. Uh, from there, I'll zoom in and try to focus on a few companies. Uh, so I think that's maybe where most people start, really, right? So I'll look at like SEC filings, understand the financials. I'll try to identify and really narrow down the list to only a few. Um, sometimes I'll reach out to the companies themselves. I'm usually reaching out to people in my network, a scientist or other management uh, executives in the field, 
uh, to get a read on it. Uh, and then I try to, if I can, uh, narrow it down to one company that I can invest in. Now, sometimes I do this and there's no companies to invest in. So you just kind of walk away with your head down. Um, but um, that's the bottom up approach to investing. So I take more of a, let's call it an experiential approach. Almost all of the stocks that I've recommended at 7investing and most of the ones in my portfolio that were not Max Chatsko picks are stocks that I've been hands-on with. So let's pick a stock, I, a company that's IPOing that, that I'll tell you, I'll, I'll not be buying, Krispy Kreme. If I decided, hey, Americans are pretty overweight and they like coffee a lot, like Krispy Kremes are delicious. Like I bet this is a good business. I would go to a Krispy Kreme and not only would I order and see how that goes, and I'd probably do it more than once, uh, but I would watch how other people are, are, are handled. I'd watch to see if the staff is well-trained. Uh, if it isn't, maybe I would dig in to see, geez, are the stores franchised or company-owned? I'd get a little bit of a sense of it. And I would find out right away, when I walk into a Krispy Kreme, I'd go, wait a minute, there's only donuts here? There's no breakfast sandwiches? There's no bagels? That, to me, would be, if not a red flag, a pretty dinging yellow flag. And then I would move into step two. So you can't always do this. There's one pick in my portfolio that, that I, I almost had to skip step one. And I took sort of the approach max state of, geez, hey, this is an industry I'd like to be in. How do I do it? But most of the time, my ideas come from, oh, hey, like I'm using this product every day. Like, you know, or let's go back many years and I don't own Roku. I should, but I don't. Uh, I should have gone, Wow. I use this product. It's awesome. And the reason I didn't buy it is because I also used an Amazon product. And I went, oh, Amazon will crush them. And now we know that's not true. But I start very hands-on. Part two is uh, what do you read and watch to learn about the company? Uh, uh, I'll go first here, Max, because you shared some of the things you watch and read. I start with... Uh, the last couple of quarters of earnings calls. And I sort of look at what is the company talking about as their problems? What are the, the trials and tribulations? I might look at earnings reports, but that doesn't tell you that much. I'll also watch to see if there's any company presentations. A lot of tech companies and telecoms and other spaces I follow uh, do a lot of big public events. So, you know, everything from watching, say, like an Apple Investor Day type event, which is pure hype and not not meant to be all that informative beyond a public relations point of view, to places where sometimes people are getting grilled at industry conferences and events. If possible, when we're in a normal world and we're traveling, I'll try to talk to somebody from the company or at least watch somebody from the company go give a speech. Uh, you can learn a lot. Like I'm not an investor in Beyond Meat. I just don't see how you could possibly differentiate enough in that space to be worth my investment. I also think lab-grown meat is going to be a, a pretty big challenger at some point. That being said, I saw the founder give a speech and one, I then dug into why he's not the CEO and that. So as much as I don't own it, I came way closer to wanting to own it because I saw the person and, and believed the vision much more than I did. Max, where do you read? Where do you go? Yeah. So like I said, I, um, I, for drug developers too, I should color that in, right? That's my perspective here for this, this, this uh, topic here for the show. Um, so I start with scientific literature. And then I, you know, I'm very heavy into SEC filings as well. I try to read uh, quarterly and annual reports for all the companies I, I own and recommend. Um, so I already talked about that, but I would say too, investors have to be careful about uh, the sources of information they're reading, right? I mean, Dan, <laughs> uh, you and I worked in media, we know like it's, um, some of those maybe aren't the best sources of research. Maybe it's not from people that are well-informed. Uh, sometimes the incentives aren't necessarily there to do the best research. So you know, you also have to think about too, like industry conferences, or if you read like investor presentations, for instance, right? That's the company telling you what they want you to see and hear, 
no company issues a, a presentation that says, hey, here's all the things we're doing wrong. Here's our biggest weaknesses, right? You don't see that. So you have to seek out objective information uh, and not just information that confirms what you want to be true. Uh, so you guard against biases in the things you're reading as well. I would say you have to learn enough on your own so you could see if a person writing, you know, let's call it an analysis piece, actually has any analysis. Uh, it would drive me insane uh, back when I, I, I don't cover the cable industry as much as I used to, but I would see cord cutting articles that fundamentally got the numbers wrong. Those are not hard numbers to get. They're, they're widely reported. Yeah. The other thing is, you know, when you're following individual writers, I think it's really important to get to know the writer. So there's a lot of great analysts out there. A lot of our friends on Twitter are great analysts and they may disagree with us, but they may work at places where somebody else is writing the opposite opinion. So you need to know the foundation of the person, what they believe in. I, I liken it a lot to, to movie and television reviews. If you understand, hey, this television reviewer tends to value the same things I do, um, you know, then you might take their advice more often than not. For example, if you like my recommendations, I'll tell you right now, go watch MODOK on Hulu. It is the best superhero cartoon I have seen in ages. It is totally rips apart what you would think. That is unrelated to this show though. Um, let's go to number three here. We would love your questions and comments. Tristan, we'll take yours a little bit later, but I appreciate it. Uh, uh, we, have a, we have a few more to get through here. Is there an obvious deal breaker to you? Because th there is one for me, Max. An, uh, I don't know about an obvious one. Um, there's so much uh, nuance, I think, when it comes to like drug developers, right? The different diseases, different parts of the market, all that. I will say the three things I do look for in companies are that they're addressing pain points. That means they're actually adding value. They're solving some type of problem. It's not uncommon to see companies that have a solution looking for a problem. Uh, you don't want to own those companies. So addressing pain points. I also want companies that have technology platforms. Uh, that makes it easier to scale, makes it easier to recover from failures so long as the underlying technology platform works. And I also want companies that have durable advantages. Sometimes that's intellectual property. Sometimes that's um, just having good you know, science behind it because uh, that makes it easier to navigate the competitive landscape. So ideally, I, I really only invest in companies that have all three of those boxes checked. Sometimes I'll make exceptions, but I, I almost never do. For me, the biggest deal breaker is I will not invest in companies that don't value their customers and treat them well. And I think it's 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 why, like, I don't care how much money AT&T makes, I'm not going to invest in it. I'm never going to invest in Comcast. And when I look at any public-facing company, I don't expect perfection. Things are going to go wrong. There are a million reasons I don't invest in, say, food delivery, but the biggest one is they don't value you as a customer. They look at you as numbers. Uh, and I, I think how you handle problems, problems are inevitable. You know, if you have an internet connection or, you know, whatever, whatever it might be, things are going to go wrong. When I call that company, do they make it easy to get a person? Does that person actually have the latitude to talk to me and not have to read a script? Oh, I know. I feel bad about your problem. Do you know you could go to our website and get it? I know that my internet's out. Please fix it. Like, I have little tolerance for that. And I have a pretty high standard for it. It's why, like, I look at, say, an Apple. You know, and I go, oh, wow, like this is really expensive. But if something's wrong, it's super easy to get it dealt with. Uh, you know, it is really easy to get your, yeah, it's expensive if you're not under Apple Care, but it's really easy to get your stuff fixed. Number four, how do you view management? I'll be quick here. Management's really important to me, but that doesn't always mean management is perfect. So I'm not against 
uh, a Steve Jobs style flawed genius CEO, as long as the overall company culture doesn't necessarily reflect that. Now that could be bad at the upper in the C-suite, in the upper tiers of the company, you might see a lot of volatility, but I can put up with a difficult, I, I'm not a giant fan of the, the evil genius, um, you know, and I, and I won't throw out the, the one we, we've had thrown out to us the most, uh, though there's two you could, you could really think of. But I do think sometimes with being incredibly brilliant means you're not necessarily going to be the best people person. And then I look a little deeper. Is there a good COO? Are there layers? Uh, are people happy at the company? Um, I, I've been places, I've worked adjacent to places that didn't necessarily have a nice guy at the top of the chain, but the rest of the culture was actually pretty good. Max, I'm going to guess management is incredibly important in early stage uh, biotech investing. Yeah, but first, I mean, let's just name names, right? The evil genius you're talking about, Simon Erickson, uh, CEO <laughs> here. Um, Simon does have a hairless cat, so no, no, he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, so actually, I don't, I don't actually value. Um, I, I should say, I, I don't weight uh, management very heavily in drug development. Um, it's a box that you know, if if they have an amazing management team, that's good. I check that box. I try not to overweight it because at the end of the day. It comes out of the science and the data, right? You can have the best manager team in the world that do everything right. But if the therapeutic compound you're studying for the first time ever doesn't work, then it doesn't really matter what people are in charge. You can have the right people in charge to avoid missteps and make uh, development uh, go smoother. It's way more important once you get to commercial stage operations and you have a drug on the market, you need to really navigate a lot of uh, um, complex situations there. But if a, if a company I'm looking at has terrible management, then I absolutely weight that against them. And that's, that's almost one of my deal breakers. Um, so, so that's how I look at it. Let me ask a follow-up here. Do you dig into the sales team? Uh, and, the, and the reason I ask is because, you know, my brother is a, a sales leader. My brother's the, uh, I don't know what his title is. He's, he's in charge of all of sales for, for Tottenham Hotspur in the Premier League. And I've watched him sell and he's really, really good. And, and I have a buddy who is an amazing sales trainer and, and, and has a book coming out, which we'll probably have him on this show. I would think in the biotech world, if I have two drugs that are roughly similar, who, who, whoever has the better sales leadership is probably going to win. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and it's funny. Um, increasingly, you're seeing companies talk about their sales team. Sometimes they even have individuals on the sales team in their investor presentations and what territories they're covering across the United States. So it kind of puts this front and center for investors. This only comes into play if you have commercial stage operations. Um, so that can take years to get to. Not all the companies I invest in have any drugs on the market yet. <laughs> um, but when they do, it is very important to do that. And also, you know, that comes in the, that's a whole other thing you need to evaluate their commercial strategy because then it's already on the market. It's approved, uh, but you still have to sell it. You still have to get insurance coverage. You have to explain to doctors and patients why this drug is adding value. So very much important. Sam Bailey, and uh, happy birthday, Sam Bailey, by the way. We are going to take the second comment from, uh, from Tristan Wakeley uh, before we get to the next ones. Do you eliminate stocks from certain regions due to disclosure, rule of law, government, uh, e.g. China, EU, etc.? So I don't rule it out. Uh, obviously, I own some companies that have some exposure in, in the entire world, but I don't generally seek out companies that their prime operations are in places that I don't operate. So I'll give you a great example of a really good company that I should own. I should own Mercado Libre. I don't. Um, and it's because I just don't feel comfortable in not understanding how that part of the world works. Now, do enough of my friends who's investing Acumen I trust love that stock that I should probably buy it? Yes. Um, I don't own C Limited. And part of that is, is global exposure. 
part of it is I'm not sure about their reliance on a game to provide a lot of their revenue to fund their growth and other businesses. Uh, Max, do you have anything that you just flat out rule out? So I'm like tin foil hat level, you know, uh, a conspiracy theory when it comes to China. No, I, I just think this decade is going to be rough for U.S.-China relations. I do actually consider that a yellow flag or a red flag for companies that I'm looking at if they're a little too close to or too reliant on, you know, suppliers in China, manufacturing in China, something to do with China. That tends to come into play more for energy companies I'm looking at. But uh, ironically, one of the uh, drug developers I've recommended here very close to certain partners in China. And I'm like, oh man. And they announced that after I recommended them. So ironic that that would happen to me. Um, but yeah, I, I just think it's going to be tougher to operate there. And I actually look at the opposite of that means that there's opportunities. The U.S. is going to start onshoring certain critical supply chains and investing in certain industries, AI, synthetic biology. We're going to do more of that here. Uh, so you want companies that are taking advantage of that and maybe seen as like national strategic uh, importance. Uh, of these companies and businesses that that was, I think come out a little bit more in this decade, but uh, uh, maybe that's, yeah. So there you go. We appreciate the question and would love to hear from more of you as the show goes on. Number five on our list here is uh, how important is valuation and how do you assess risk? So uh, Max valuation matters more to you than it does to me. I tend to be recommending most of my picks are fairly mature companies and I'm looking at where is the growth going to come from. And if I see a path to growth, risk for me is one where I mostly avoid risk. I I would say if you're an older investor looking for a safer portfolio that's going to throw off some dividends. And I say this because we got an email today asking us, you know, this question. I'm someone who's, you know, 15 years from retirement, you know, is your service right for us? And I would argue that you can pick and choose and have some investments that have a lot of upside, but don't necessarily have that downside risk. Like, you know, I'll, I'll pick one that I'm not invested in, you know, Target, company I really, really love, just don't know why I don't own any stock, but I don't. What's the worst case scenario for Target? It's going to languish, like it's going to die over thirty years. Like you know, it, it, there, there's no scenario like you have with some of these high flying tech companies where someone invents a better wheel and all of a sudden, you know, these big traditional companies. Now, have we seen big traditional companies die? Sure, we're in the the prolonged death rattle of Sears and J.C. Penney. It can absolutely happen. But I tend to look for companies that are also innovating and and evolving in a way you're not going to see quickly. Because you know what? Adding a couple billion dollars in sales at Walmart doesn't mean that much. But Max, in your space, valuation and risk are much different. Yeah, so there's different types of risks. And I outline these in my recommendation reports. So there's like technical risk, commercial risks, uh, market risk from the competitive landscape. And then there's valuation risk. So you know, I was kind of, I don't know, sounding the alarms at the end of last year and beginning of this year, because in biotech, it really is different. If you're a tech company and you're growing revenue very rapidly, even if you're not profitable, we can at least squint our eyes and turn our heads and look at it just right and kind of justify valuations. And maybe we're just looking three years out instead of two years out or such on. Um, In biotech, when a company's valuation gets too high, that's a lot different because you're assuming that certain de-risking events that haven't happened yet, like a clinical trial data readout, uh, you know, is going to be favorable and that hasn't happened yet. Um, so if you're pricing in way too much valuation and then that de-risking event is uh, fails or is unfavorable, you have a lot steeper decline to go. Um, so it's a lot different for companies that are, um, you know, development stage drug developers and they don't have a drug on the market. Uh, valuation risk does matter quite a bit. 
And Max, you actually invest in companies sometimes knowing that, or always knowing that a percentage of them may literally fail, may never come up with a commercial product. Like, is that just a numbers game where you have to identify, you know, a basket of those companies? Um, you know, I mean, any any company can fail in, in the drug development space, especially like early stage drug developers. Um, you know, I think of all the companies I've recommended, they're all, I think they're all going to be successful. It's more of a matter of time. Uh, so that's where that bottom up framework comes into play and having uh, other frameworks that I look at companies with uh, that comes into play. Uh, but sure. I mean, you, have to, you got to accept that, you know, if your thesis breaks, it's tough to recover from like, Hey, this technology doesn't work. Right. There's no, uh, it's not like a pivot at target. Like you were saying, right. They just, it's, it's way different. So yeah, you yeah, just have you, to you can't be like, hey, this uh, cancer curing pill doesn't work. Like, let's use them as connect four pieces. Like, it's just, <laughs> there's just very little you can do when, when that happens. We're going to go to the last one here. Uh, it is how do you actually buy? And I am not disciplined on this. So when I decide to buy a stock, I look at how much money is in my account at any given time, and I buy some. <laughs> it's usually just a small amount. You know, maybe it's a, a couple hundred dollars. Maybe it's even less if it's something... Uh, you know, that I'm buying because because you picked it and it's not a company I really know. And then as money is added in my account, I kind of unscientifically look at my positions and look at what's up or down in any given day. And maybe I'll see a real opportunity. The market's been so volatile. Maybe you'll see something you really like that went down 20% for stupid reasons. Um, you know, or 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 maybe there's just something that's really been lagging performance and you go, okay, this stock's been really flat because, and, and I actually wrote a public facing article that I think you edited uh, on how a lot of retailers, it's gonna be really hard to judge performance next year because you know, you're seeing things like Lululemon be up 88% in revenue. Well, if next year they're only up 2% in revenue, is that because there was pent up demand? Are there, is their audience slowing? I don't know. It's gonna take years to figure this out um, so I look for signs that there's value there, but there's no major science to it for me. Max, how do you do it? So I, I do have allocation like targets that I try to build to, but uh, we use the term buy and hold. I've actually updated that recently to accumulate and wait. I think those are the two more accurate verbs. So um, you know, if I'm going to start a position at a company, I buy a little bit and then I build over time over many months uh, into the allocation that I want. So my largest holding, for instance, I've bought shares uh, in each of the last 18 months. So sometimes it just takes a lot of time, but that smooths out your entry points. Sometimes you're buying, quote, high. Sometimes you're buying, quote, low. And over the long run, that doesn't really matter. But you don't want to uh, buy your entire position all at once. That's not how I would do it anyway. I think that's a little too, uh, that's unwise. So I do do that if it's something where my position is only going to be 2%. Okay. If it's something that I'm going to have, again, and I have a few stocks in my portfolio, and they're, they're probably all stocks you recommended, <laughs> that I looked at the upside and went, okay, 2% will probably be enough if, uh, on the chance that this happens. Um, and some of those, there are some stocks where I do own in that 2% range that are cheap enough that if I end up with like a rounding error in my account and have like a few bucks left, I might buy like a share or two and add because I don't like seeing money sit in my account. I, I like sort of <laughs> zeroing out that balance. So that is our approach. That is how we pick and buy stocks. We, of course, would love your questions and comments. We actually see a bunch of you watching out there. So feel free to chime in or just enjoy the show. Max, we are getting to the point of the month where we start to think about our picks for next month. 
but it's still early. We just released our, our picks for, for June, and it is a diverse, amazing selection. But if you're thinking about becoming a member of 7investing, it's important to do that right now. Why is that? Because as of July 8th, as of the end of the day on July 7th, our prices are going to go up. So right now, if you join, you can pay $17 a month or $170 a year for life. If you wait, you are going to have to pay $49 a month or $399 a year. Why would you do that? Like you have $17. We would, I'm teasing a little bit, but we are such a tremendous value and we would love to have you be a member. And if you join now before the end of the month, you get access to our new member call on the third Friday. That's not this Friday. That'd be a week from Friday. After that, you get access to our members call where a shocking percentage of our membership shows up uh, and asks us questions about our past picks, uh, really things we cannot talk about here on 7investing now. Uh, our current picks, our past picks, what are we thinking about? Uh, what are our, uh, our top picks, uh, which later does become members content? Uh, there is so much stuff. So Sam Bailey, if you could share, it is 7investing.com slash subscribe. You have until July 8th, but why would you wait? Get there now. So Max, we start putting this show together usually the night before, and we agreed on the main topic. And then I think at some point today, maybe like nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, you put in, you know, hey, the FDA might rule on Biogen's Alzheimer's drug. And then, I don't know, maybe like 11, like pretty close to showtime, they actually made a ruling. So let's look at the top line. The top line is that the FDA has approved Biogen's Alzheimer drug, but that's not really the full story, right? Yeah, so maybe a little background. Um, Biogen was developing a monoclonal antibody that went in and cleared out uh, beta amyloid plaques around um, brain cells, right? So there's the beta amyloid hypothesis that suggests um, the buildup of certain plaques in the brain is actually the, the main driver of Alzheimer's disease. These build up, um, it leads to cognitive decline, it starts to interfere with brain function. And as plaques build up and get worse, that means you have more severe Alzheimer's or dementia. So this drug was developed to clear those plaques and they ran two clinical trials years ago. The first one failed and they were like, oh man, this sucks. Um, and the second one also initially failed. So they said, okay, we're going to halt development. It just didn't work. It was just another one in the long list of Alzheimer's treatments that uh, tried and failed. Then later they came in and said, hey, actually we have data that wasn't available the first time around. And in one of these studies, we can actually see it provided a benefit, meaning it slowed the progression of disease in patients who had early onset uh, Alzheimer's, so early stage Alzheimer's. And the data weren't actually very, very conclusive. There's some controversy here. Um, the FDA has also been criticized for maybe working a little too closely with Biogen. Um, there was an ad com, so an advisory committee meeting uh, where an independent panel weighs in for the FDA. It's not actually the regulator decision. Um, and they weigh in and they make a recommendation to the FDA. And they voted 10 out of 11 of these people on the ad com said that they would not favor approval. So then today the FDA came out and actually approved the drug uh, in early stage Alzheimer's patients. So it's not approved for all Alzheimer's patients. There's about 6 million individuals in the United States affected by Alzheimer's. This can treat potentially uh, maybe 2 million of those. Additionally, it's a conditional uh, approval. So Biogen still has to run a much larger clinical trial to actually collect the data that shows that the efficacy is legitimate. 
if it's not, then this might actually get yanked from the market um, years from now. So Max, this may surprise you, but I'm not a scientist. And (laughs) what this drug has proven to be effective at is clearing plaque from the brain that is connected, they think, to Alzheimer's. But is it possible that clearing plaque does not actually impact the progression of Alzheimer's? Like, like, could this be a drug that's effective at doing something that seems like it would help, but doesn't actually help? Yeah. So in clinical trials, even the one that failed, um, about 30 or patients saw on average a 30% reduction in the amyloid plaques in their brain, uh, according to PET scans. So that is good. The issue is that, um, you know, the beta amyloid hypothesis might be a little too simplistic, right? So yes, uh, the buildup of plaques in the brain can lead to, it plays a role in Alzheimer's and dementia. Uh, but it's, it's, it's almost like only part of the process, right? Uh, for instance, in recent years, we have a lot of evidence suggesting that sleep quality is actually the more important driver of uh, Alzheimer's progression. And that's because it actually is before, uh, it's what causes plaques to build up in the brain. So when you sleep and you go through certain cycles in your sleep, um, assuming those are deep enough, that's when your brain's actually clearing uh, cellular wastes from cells in the brain, including these plaques. So if that process breaks down, that's when plaques can accumulate. And then that leads to uh, Alzheimer's. So it's kind of like a chicken or the egg, I guess. You know, do you want to focus on sleep quality or do you want to just focus on mopping up some of these plaques? Does that actually address the bigger part of the process that's broken down? Um, So we do have like very small studies where electrical stimulation of the brain is actually very effective at treating or slowing or halting uh, Alzheimer's disease progression. But we have this like drug first mentality, you know, in healthcare in the United States. So we're always looking for drugs that we can give people. Um, And, and, you know, I think at some point this decade, we'll actually come to conclude sleep quality is the way more important metric to focus on. And maybe the intervention's not drugs, or maybe it's not drugs only. Maybe it'll also be, you know, some type of electrical stimulation, a cap you wear at night that, you know, juices your brain, Dan, with uh, fun (laughs) electrical signals. So you get improved sleep quality. Yeah, I feel like the sleep quality ship has sailed for me. So I'm (laughs) I'm hoping the electrical stimulation or the mop-up idea will work. I am not a great sleeper and I don't feel like that's something that's going to change. Uh, you know, so if, if there's some method of making my sleep better by zapping my brain, zap away. I am totally good with that. Max, I want to talk about what this means for investors. I think it's really important because you are going to see, I'm going to guess, wild stock price movements in any company that has anything in its Alzheimer's pipeline. And that might not track to reality. Is that, is that a reasonable take on it? Yeah. So uh, last I looked, Biogen stock was halted. It might not be it right now. I, I, we've been on the air for a while, but uh, Eli Lilly stock was not halted. And it is also developing uh, an antibody drug that's in the same class as the Biogen drug candidate. Um, and they had actually, it seemed like, uh, you know, encouraging results. Uh, so that stock was up 10%. And this is Eli Lilly. This is one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. Uh, you know, it was back to like $200 billion at market open today. So it immediately shot up 10%. That's a $20 billion gain in valuation on a drug that's in development. You know, that's a pretty big move for a company of that size. Um, so yeah, we're gonna, and it's probably going to be even worse if there's any small caps out there uh, that maybe are working on something similar. So I would say, you know, you need to be cautious. And remember, this is a, um, you know, this is a conditional approval. So Biogen still has to run a larger clinical trial. That might not be successful. And then we're right back to where we started. 
Um, <laughs> and there are other hurdles here. We talked about it earlier. This drug is supposed to cost about $8,000 a year. I think I'm getting that correct. Um, there needs to be insurance approval. Insurance's willingness to pay for it might be tied to, well, what other expenses does it stop the insurance company? Maybe it stops you from needing an, a more expensive symptom-related drug. Uh, you know, So there's a whole ecosystem that has to be worked out here. And I would always be really careful about buying or selling anything based on front page news. The people playing this news probably made their bets a long time ago. Uh, and and this, this is not a guarantee. If this works, it could help about a million point five people. And that's really exciting, but it's not necessarily going to work. But Max, why was this a big decision for the FDA? Yeah, so you're right. Um, so actually there was a, uh, it's called the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, ICER, and they are very influential. They kind of look at the uh, cost benefit analysis for new drug candidates, and they suggest what would be a fair economic value for drugs. They said, based on the data we have, this drug would be worth $2,500 to $8,000 per year. That would be a fair value. So that's pretty low for something that's an Alzheimer's treatment, right? Um, the company is expected to price it between $10,000 per year to $25,000 per year. But then you have to get insurance coverage. Insurance companies might base what they're willing to accept on that ICER review, which is closer to like 8,000 or lower. Um, so that's a hurdle. Also, you know, to qualify for treatment, you have to get a very expensive PET scan. You also have to, it, the drug is administered once a month through IV intravenous and, and, uh, administration. So that's not very convenient. Uh, so there's other hurdles here. It's not, I think the way to summarize it, investors often look at clinical development, phase three clinical development as like the end, the last bookend. And if you have a successful phase three clinical trial, that's it. And that's not really true. That's the end of clinical development, but that's the beginning of commercial development. So that's now where Biogen is facing hurdles and obstacles. Uh, so we'll see, we'll see how that goes. Um, what was it? You asked a question there before. Uh, let, let, let me, let me ask another question. Yeah. So, this is obviously hopeful. If you have Alzheimer's, early stage Alzheimer's, you're aware of what you have and it is a bleak road you're going down. So something like this is encouraging. Do you see, and let, let's say the next 20 years, do you see further development? Do we have the, the data, the tools that we should be able to maybe not cure, but slow progression or give people like we, we've seen it with, uh, you know, with, with all sorts of different things that were previously untreatable. Multiple sclerosis would be a good example, where there are a lot of treatments that they don't necessarily stop the disease, but they can stop flare-ups, they can lessen severity, they can give you a longer runway you know, of, of health. Are we going to see that with Alzheimer's, where it's you know one of those things where you don't want to hear your doctor say it, but you also know, okay, or Parkinson's, another good one. You know, when Michael J. Fox got Parkinson's, it seemed like you know a, a death sentence, and we've seen massive uh, changes in how that disease is treated. It's not cured; it's still something that dramatically impacts his life and many other lives. But it has moved forward. Are we going to go that same direction with Alzheimer's? Yes, if you have a long enough timeline. Um, you know, I think every decade we're getting better at understanding biology. It's still very complex. We still have a long way to go. But yeah, uh, 10 years from now, we'll be in an even better pl place. 20 years from now, 30 years from now. One of the problems has been, you know, the, the technical hurdles has been uh, targeting things in the brain. Uh, it's been tough to cross the blood-brain barrier uh, and get drugs there and, and understand targets there. Um, and again, like I was just talking about, we often don't understand the whole mechanism. You know, like sleep quality is an important component. There are no drug developers that are looking at sleep quality as a metric in their clinical trials. 
Um, if they did, I bet we'd get much different data results or we'd be able to see, uh, maybe you'd be able to bin patients differently uh, based on their sleep quality and who's actually responding to your drug or not. Uh, but yeah, 10, 20 years from now, I think we'll make a lot of progress. Our ability to measure sleep on a mass level is at an all-time high. Every person who owns a, a Fitbit can track their sleep. And I have to assume that at some point the Apple Watch will get better battery and be able to do that. And there's so our ability to take aggregate data on sleep and then back it out into percentage of, of people that have Alzheimer's. And that data is not there yet, but it certainly will be in the next few years. We've talked about that a lot on this show, sort of all this data that Apple and Google and Amazon and others are collecting and how we can use it to, to figure things out. And that is a really good example. Uh, Sam, I am not going to share David Strauss's comment because it is not great advice for everybody. Uh, but David, I do appreciate the advice. And yes, that might be uh, imp impacting my sleep uh, in both a positive and negative way. I would add, I would add to that, even though we're not going to read it. Um, that's not good for sleep quality, actually. So there's a good book called uh, Why We Sleep. Definitely read that, David. It talks about the difference between, you know, basically incapacitating yourself and then actually sleep quality. So there's two different things. Uh <laughs> I say find the healthy balance between incapacitation and sleep quality. But, uh, you know, do as, do as is right for you. We appreciate you watching along. We have one more section here. We're going to enter the home stretch. Max, before we do this, is there anything else you want to say on Biogen and this latest development here? No, I mean, um, just be careful. You know, um, there's still a lot of hurdles here. So depending on what goes on in the stock price today, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a screaming buy or anything like that. Uh, it's a conditional approval. And I think it more often than or more likely it opens a pretty slippery slope for the FDA in terms of uh, do all the other drugs that have questionable inconclusive data now get approved? Like, um, I think this is going to be potentially a tough genie to put back in the bottle here. So it could it could lead to worse things. Max, could this change regulation in like, I mean, we have some drugs that you can use under compassionate use cases where, uh, you know, there is no hope for you. So this drug that may or may not work, I, I know that's the case with certain cancer treatments and studies. And it's not like they just give it to you. They're, they're, they're in as parts of studies or trials. Could this be a case where if you have something where the end result is terrible, that there's just, I, I hate to say this word because it sounds like a horror movie, but there's just more human experimentation where the end's going to be bad, so why not uh, Why not try something? Yeah, I mean, so the risk here is that we allow ineffective drugs, and then they're ex more expensive than the benefit they're providing. So you don't want you don't want a healthcare system that's based on that. Um, so if this is priced at you know five thousand dollars a year, and maybe it helps a small amount of the patients that are eligible, then th that might be a net benefit. But if they price it at you know thirty thousand dollars a year, and it doesn't help hardly anyone, then that's a net cost to the healthcare system. So we don't want to have a, uh, a regulatory agency that's uh, allowing that to happen. I think this is more likely it's is a one-off case. I think there was a lot of pressure to get the drug approved because there are currently really no treatment options for Alzheimer's. So, um, uh, you know, maybe hopefully this is just a, a one-off example. Yeah. I mean, there's a slippery slope here and, and Joyce Hine, we appreciate the comment there. Uh, it is one of those cases where we, we've seen Americans traveling overseas, traveling to South America to get treatments that either aren't allowed here 
or might not work. Uh, we've seen our athletes go get their blood spun and other things that that does appear to work. We've seen uh, you know some things like plastic surgery tourism, where you're going to go to Thailand to get your calf implants because it's cheaper, but then something goes wrong and they don't have the same medical infrastructure that we do. I just picked the most ridiculous place and thing I could think of. I have no idea if people go to Thailand to get calf implants or, or even if Thai calf implants are particularly popular anymore. But uh, let's hit the home stretch here, Max. Is there a stock you won't own, even though it has strong business prospects? I asked this on Twitter, and a shocking amount of people, thousands of people have taken a look at it. A lot of people have commented and answered. I threw out there that for me, it's Domino's Pizza. This is a company that executes unbelievably well, but their core product, I would only eat if it's 1.30 in the morning and I'm traveling and no other food source is open. That is the only scenario. Now, I'm not saying if you invite me over and there's there's Domino's, I'm gonna be like, hey, jerk and throw it at you, but I am never seeking Domino's out because there's almost always a better food choice. So I don't care how well they execute. And I get the argument for, for our colleague, Matt Cochran, who has a family of six, it is a really inexpensive option. I still feel like there's almost as cheap pizza that's dramatically better. Max, what's one for you that you understand the case, but you just don't want to own it? Dan, I would say that's almost un-American to not like Domino's Pizza. I, uh, I think yeah, Sam, I, kick, kick, kick I, this bum off. We can finish I, the show. I am Team Noid. <laughs> <laughs> one company that uh, I won't know. So I actually did own this company up until the beginning of this year. It's called Catalent. Everyone knows Catalent, right, Dan? I assume they sell cat toys. Yes. No. Uh, so Catalent is a contract development uh, manufacturing organization, a CDMO, which means uh, all it does is manufacture drugs for uh, drug developers, right? So drug developers focus on clinical trials. Once a drug's approved, they say, hey, Catalent, you have all the infrastructure for this. You go make this, uh, make it work and make it cheap and all that. Uh, so that's what Catalent does, right? It's a contract manufacturing organization. Um, and, you know, they've made a lot of great decisions. Obviously, they played a big role during the pandemic in the last year. They made some great investments in gene therapy capacity and capabilities, also cell therapy in recent years. Um, however, uh, when they made the deal, the financing deal to own or to to buy the company in cell therapy uh, manufacturing, um, they didn't get debt. They didn't issue stock. They made this arrangement with a private equity fund and made a new class of shares, preferred shares. Uh, so the way it works is, you know, all the profits trickle down the income statement. But before they get to you and me, Dan, uh, they actually get siphoned off onto the preferred class of, of shares, uh, and then we get whatever's left over. So we're benefiting from all the revenue growth that that acquisition enabled, uh, but we're not actually getting the profit growth because uh, some of that's going to the, you know, uh, the fat cat investor with the monocle and top hat. Uh, that's how I imagine anyway. <laughs> um, so the share price got a little ahead of itself, I think, at the beginning of this year. I was already on the fence about it. I didn't like that class structure. Uh, so I sold that position, exited it entirely, and uh, redistributed that into companies I feel better about. So kind of a not like a hard, I like the business, but uh, just for that reason, I thought, yeah, I'd rather invest in some of these other companies. If you'd like to answer that question, I will retweet it from my Twitter account. That is asked at Worst Ideas 7. Uh, I'm only sharing this because it got such a tremendous response. Uh, Tristan Wakeley says, a shout out from Four Corners, Davenport, Florida. So if you happen to live in the Orlando, in the Davenport area, I am speaking Saturday at Money Show, which is at the Omni Hotel. You can still register. You can see me speak live in person Monday 
on the future of retail and really how everyone is getting retail wrong. And if you happen to be in that area, there is a reasonable chance I will Friday morning be at the Orlando Cat Cafe having coffee. Uh, the coffee part of it is actually called Minch Coffee. It is a lovely place. I will be writing the Friday show from there almost certainly. With that being said, we are running out of time. Max, let's hit our finisher. Sam Bailey, if you can share the graphic, that would be great. Which sector has the most upside over the next 20 years? Overwhelmingly, about half of you, a little more than half of you said biotech. 21.3 said cryptocurrency, 11% said entertainment, 14.9% said space. It's worth noting that in the comments, a lot of people said it would be space if the horizon was longer. I actually think it's entertainment. I think we're in this massive uh, land grab and entertainment and shift and consolidation moving to sort of either really good niches, like say your discovery channels or really big blockbusters like you're seeing with Disney. I think we're gonna evolve and figure stuff out. I'm not saying all of these aren't great sectors, but if I had to be confident that one is really, really gonna work, that's where I would go. And I, and I know I'm wrong. Max, where would you go? So I, would, I think biotech's correct, but I would clarify it and say synthetic biology. So as a little teaser, that's our podcast episode tomorrow. I so, to like build, so to build like the vision? like To build what? Uh, do, are you not an Avengers guy? To, I was going to say to build Vision, who is a synthetic humanoid that comes to life in the Avengers movies. Is that not where synthetic biology is going? No, no, no. So it's more about like reproducibility of uh, biology and, and building things with biology. Um, so that's our podcast episode tomorrow. I, I interviewed Drew Endy. Uh, so we talked all about um, synthetic biology and different companies in the space like Ginkgo Bioworks and Twist Bioscience. Um, but I would say it's biology because... Uh, that is going to eat the rest of the economy, right? Everything in space, well, you need biology to get there. Um, you know, we talk about a bioeconomy today, but really everything in the economy will be biotech one day, right? We're going to grow metals and concrete and all kinds of crazy things, batteries, uh, computers one day will be biologic. Um, so biology is has the most upside. Uh, 20 years might be a little early for that, but uh, definitely in, in our lifetimes. The entertainment world can profit from that with, of course, the release of go. Biodome 2. No, don't do that. <laughs> Biodome 1 was not a good movie. We appreciate so many of you watching, uh, a handful of you playing along. We will be back on Wednesday. If you'd like to get in touch with us, that's really easy. Uh, you could send a self-addressed stamped envelope. No, you don't have to do that anymore. I remember when you had to do that, but you don't have to do that. You can email us at info at seveninvesting.com. That is questions about your membership, questions about pricing, questions about how the service works, when something happens. Uh, we're happy to take your questions there. If you want to interact with us, that is at seven. That is the number seven investing on Twitter. We are very, very active. It is. Uh, it is could be any one of us behind the Twitter chair. Uh, don't know what we're doing on Wednesday show. I know that on Friday, uh, we will we will have Honorban Mahante on, and we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of companies that I know nothing about. So it's going to be a really exciting <laughs> Honorban-driven show. Uh, until then, I am Dan Klein. He is Max Chatsko. For Sam Bailey behind the glass, we'll see you Wednesday. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.